0: It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 14. And if you do not have a Bible, there should be some Bibles, hopefully, underneath the seat in front of you. We refer to those as our pew Bibles, even though we have chairs now. Uh, In the pew Bible, though, the ESV Bible, you can find this passage on page 235, 235, 1 Samuel, chapter 14. We're continuing our sermon series, and uh, this morning, looking at the the first half of the chapter, verses one through twenty-three. And before we get to reading God's word this morning, um, some hear a passage that's going to be preached from the Old Testament and think, "This how how is this relevant to my life?" the 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 events that occur in First Samuel happened thousands of years ago. Uh, I, I need something for today. And I think it's good as we continue to work through this series in First Samuel to be reminded of uh, words from the Apostle Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so we stand fully on the full, whole counsel of God, both old and new, all 66 books, as God's word for his people. I think that's good to be reminded of as we look at this chapter in particular, we're going to see the son of King Saul display true biblical faith, emboldened, lively faith, where his father is not doing so. Um, Definitely struggling at this point in his kingship, Uh, but I think there's much that we can glean both from King Saul and from Jonathan in how they approach life in these difficult circumstances. Now, just by way of reminder, we have been working uh, through each chapter, chapter by chapter in 1 Samuel, and so in chapter 13, if you were not with us or Like me, a few days have gone by and you already have forgotten where we were. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, several events transpired. The first was there was a garrison, an outpost of the Philistines in the land of Israel. And Jonathan, the son of Saul, actually goes and defeats this this garrison, this outpost of the Philistines that really was like stirring the hornet's nest in a sense where the Philistines gather their troops by the thousands and thousands and assemble at Michmash. And in this position, uh, it is known to Israel that, that they've defeated Saul, and his army has defeated this garrison. Saul calls all the people to assemble, getting ready for this, and he remembers what Samuel had told him to do in this situation— And he was instructed to wait, to wait until Samuel arrives and offers the sacrifices. And as the chapter unfolds, we see the first major failure of King Saul, where it's the 11th hour. He's waited seven days, and Samuel's nowhere to be found. And rather than trusting and waiting, he takes matters into his own hands and offers sacrifices that he was not authorized by God to offer. Offer the burnt offering. And then Samuel shows up on the scene as soon as he finishes the burnt offering, if you remember. And uh, he's rebuked by Samuel. He's told at that point, this failure is leading to the the end of his kingship, his reign in Israel. And so it's just now a matter of time as he plays out his role as the first king in Israel. And you would think, you know, he justified this disobedience that it would lead to a break or a breakthrough. Something would open up. He thought this was the way forward. And what happens is we see that this justifiable response didn't actually solve anything. And so at the end of the chapter, this is kind of what, what's remaining this dire situation. There have been raiders now sent out from the Philistine camp in three companies. In Israel, there was no armor. Soul, swords or spears for the soldier, because there was no blacksmith to be found in Israel. This was the oppression of the Philistines. Only Saul and Jonathan had legitimate weapons for war, and everyone else is left with, you know, agricultural tools. We're now down to 600 men who are together rallying around King Saul. And lastly and most importantly, Samuel leaves the scene. And Saul is now dealing with no guidance from the one whom God had ordained to to guide him, to lead him, to help him. Saul had isolated himself from what he needed most. The word of God through the mouthpiece of Samuel had departed. Now, we find ourselves in chapter 14. Please follow along as I read from God's word. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man, who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron, or under the pomegranate tree. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Aijah, the son of Aetub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And the people did not know where Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. One, the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, "'Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few.' And his armor-bearer said to him, "'Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul.'" Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they had hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furlough's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone out from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Aajah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was, was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So, so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, as we look at this battle that begins with the hand of Jonathan, uh, we see as it wraps up in verse 23 that God is the one who gets glory. He is the one who saved Israel this day. And I just want to make a note for the following or the upcoming Lord's Day. There is a kind of a cloud over this victory. We're, We're not done yet as we continue in chapter 14, but what we're looking at this morning is plenty for us to, to spend time looking at and reflecting upon. Um, God's mighty hand is being displayed throughout this passage. So I first want us to look at the first five verses, because in the first five verses, uh, the writer of 1 Samuel really lays out the context, all we need to know as, as this story begins to unfold, or some very helpful uh, parts that I don't want us to to move over too quickly. First, we see that there's a plan devised by the king's son. Secondly, we see that there's a description of where Saul is and who's with him, and that's important. And then lastly, there's a description of the landscape, the divide, the chasm in between where they were in Geba and where the Philistines were at Mimash. So we're going to look at that. And hopefully that will help us as we uh, unfold this passage. So first, this plan devised by the, the king's son, Jonathan. What we need to make note here is that this was done in secret. This plan was told uh, from Jonathan to his armor bearer without his dad knowing. And so this is a, a little bit of intelligence that's given to us. He did not tell his father and we're not told exactly why, but as we've looked at Saul's life and ministry or leadership, you can kind of piece some of this together. If, if Saul has his 600 and they're sitting under a pomegranate tree in this kind of mode of waiting, it's probably that Jonathan thought or knew that Saul would forbid him to, to take this venture. Maybe concerned that his dad sitting there, would continue to sit there too long. Now, I think it's important. We emphasized last week what we saw in the text in chapter 13. There was a waiting that was good, that was right. It was actually told to Saul, this is what you are to do. So it was an act of obedience. And when he stopped waiting, that was him justifying his disobedience. Here in chapter 14... We look at waiting again, and we see that what Saul is doing under the pomegranate tree, isn't that obedient waiting that we saw in chapter thirteen, which Samuel had directed him. And so, so Jonathan, observing the scene, he takes he takes action. He he moves, and it, it is also important to, as we look at chapters thirteen and fourteen, see this contrast of unbelief in Saul's inability to wait, as he was told, and faith or belief put on display by Jonathan's activity. We looked and we were able to sympathize with the pressure, the fear, maybe the despair that Saul felt As the circumstances were pressing in, he's watching as he's waiting for Samuel. His people fleeing, they're dispersing, they're leaving. He's seeing the the army of the Philistines being built up more and more. All the circumstances pressing in and you want to say, well, yeah, if I was there, I'd, I'd have a hard time waiting as well. It was that despair, the fear, the pressure in the midst of circumstances that drove his actions and so we see that his actions were unbelief. It was disobedience. And John is, or I'm sorry, Jonathan is, is set in contrast in opposition, seeing faith actually directing him to verse one, "We will go over. We will go over in faith, while Saul is staying where he is in unbelief." Next, we see some important information about who's with Saul. What is he up to? The group that's surrounding him. So we, we're told there are the 600 that are still with him. And then in very interesting detail, the grandson, the grandson of Phineas. Now this should like immediately spark our, um, our brains, our memories to what we've, ex- what we've heard in 1 Samuel thus far. This is the nephew of Ichabod. This is the guy that Saul is now hanging with. So remember, Samuel. His spiritual leader, the one helping him, ordained by God to be there, to, to, to instruct, to direct, he has left. And what we see, and I want, us to, I want to take us back to 1 Samuel 4 just by way of reminder, just to really understand how big of a deal this detail is that's given to us. We have Ahijah, the son of Hi- Ahiahub, sorry, I probably botched that every time I've said it. Ichabod's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, and so we look back at First Samuel chapter four, and I want you just to kind of hear the the background here. That that chapter concludes with both a moving and disturbing story of Eli's family. Eli was the priest; he had two worthless sons, Hophni and Phineas, and the 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 wife of Phineas. At the end of chapter four, after a horrific event has taken place that day. 30,000 foot soldiers of the Israelites killed. Both Eli and Phinehas and Hophni, both killed on that day. His wife's pregnant and is now nearing giving birth. When she heard the news that the ark of, the, of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed down and gave birth, for her birth pains came upon her. We read that in 1 Samuel 4:19 this sudden delivery proved to actually be fatal for her. She ends up dying, but she gives birth to a son. And she's, she's actually being consoled in these last moments of her life by women around her, the, the midwife so to speak, and they say, do not be afraid, for you have born, you have born a son. And you, you just have to remember, at that time, to be able to give birth to a son was, was like the <laughs> high point of any Israelite woman's life. But she was not consoled by this in her last moments. She did not even answer or pay attention. And she named her child Ichabod. The name means, where is the glory? And what's really interesting that plays out there is that there's a question posed in the naming of this boy. Where is the glory? And his mother answers that question. She answers that question by saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband are now dead. So think now where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Where is the glory? What has transpired with Saul in the previous passage where his kingdom is now being removed from him because of his disobedience? You could say, in a sense, the glory has departed from, from Saul's kingship. And now he's gathering himself with, where is the glory? It's, the irony is, is really thick here, the, the people in which he is surrounding himself with. And I, I don't want us to, to, to lose what, what I think is applicable for us here. If you in your life find that you have really messed things up, You've had a, a bad week. You've been tempted by sin. You've given in to sin. You find yourself now playing in the mud, in the muck, and and rebelling against your God by choosing sin over obedience. Is it not true that in those moments when you're down, you are even further tempted to then kind of gravitate towards things that aren't even honoring to the Lord at all. Maybe it's people who you then surround yourself with. Maybe it's, for a lot of us, if you've had a really bad week where you've majorly tripped up and have not been walking in obedience, you may find yourself watching, just kind of vegging out and watching things that are, in a sense, surrounding yourselves with the wrong people doing the wrong things, violence, sex, drunkenness, whatever it is that you're seeing on the screen, that's kind of where you're you're, you're finding yourself, you're surrounding yourself, and I want to just kind of hope that the Spirit would awaken us this morning and see Saul's mishap and who he then brings in his company and say, that is not the right path. That is a path that is continuing to lead towards destruction and not, not life. And so if you are a believer this morning, a brother and sister, and this last week has just been an utter failure and your thoughts and your words and deeds, whatever it is, Satan would want you to run and hide and, and surround yourself with further darkness. And God says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful to forgive you. Bring it to the light. Repent and, and, and run to, the, to Calvary's cross once again seeking hope and forgiveness and renewal. We are deceived by sin, where once we fall prey to it, we think that somehow more of it will somehow satisfy or, or provide what we, what we need in those moments. And so we want to see Saul's activity and say, that, that's not a good path. This wasn't the right road to go down sitting under that pomegranate tree. Maybe a a portion from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would be helpful. The Apostle Paul writes, do not be deceived in verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. And then what we also see in these first five verses, lastly, a place described that really should help us kind of understand the context that this was, from point A to point B, from point A to point B, a, a really difficult path, a, a divide between the, the Israelites and the Philistines. Uh, this place is described for us in the text in between Geba and Michmash. And really to understand the, the geography, this was the hill country with deep cuts, deep canyons and ravines, very rocky, very thorny, very difficult, uh, to, to try to hike or, or work your way through. And so many would look for kind of a bypass, which would take a lot longer, but the road would be at least doable, that trek. And yet, this is exactly where this scene is setting up, where Jonathan is going to move, is going to act. And then in verse six, we, as our story unfolds before us, we see again a, a contrast between Saul and his son Jonathan. Jonathan is the one man other than Saul in Israel that possesses armor for battle, the proper battle equipment. And he employs the sword and doesn't just put it in its sheath and sit under a tree. He is, in a sense, wielding this sword of faith, so to speak. And while his father sits, we see... Jonathan began to move. And so in verse 6, which is a very important verse in this passage that we're going to slow down a little bit on, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, We're going to learn a lot about his theology and what he says here Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. First, I want us to look at the first expression. It may be that the Lord will work for us. This is really good theology and understanding true biblical faith put on display before us. Another way to say this is perhaps, perhaps the Lord will act for us. And I would say that there are many in our day who think otherwise, who don't like this expression, perhaps the Lord will work or act for us. They would look at this phraseology and say that that perhaps, that perhaps kind of cuts at the nerve of true, rich, biblical faith. And I would just say, I don't think that's true at all. So as we look at that, they would say, so to speak, that this type of faith that Jonathan is displaying isn't the certain, dogmatic, absolutely positive faith that we should have. If you think that this should be part of your life or you should gain this, then really believe and it will happen. Maybe you've heard something like that or some form of that type of uh, what they would say is is true faith. And I want us to just slow down and think about this, perhaps. It may be that the Lord will work for us. There is an impossible task before Jonathan. He is one of two that has the proper equipment. There is this huge chasm be- between him and the Philistines, and he tells his armor bearer, we're going we're to pursue this, and in the midst of pursuing it, we're laying it before the Lord and seeking whether or not it is his will, that we are to go forward. Maybe this example from from history, there's a, a pastor, a minister, who found himself, this is many, many years ago, found himself praying for a child, apparently dying on his deathbed. The pastor goes and prays, and this is his prayer, if it be thy will, O Lord, spare this child. The wretched and distracted mother interrupted him with the words, It must be God's will. I will have no ifs in this situation. Now, I wonder where you land in the way that you approach seeing God move in mighty ways. The way you pray to God. The pastor I would submit to you was following Jonathan's lead and biblically crying out to God in faith, Lord, Perhaps, if it be your will. And I want to explain why this is important. Faith, biblical faith, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is actually part of biblical faith. So in this expression, he both confesses that God is powerful enough to do whatever he sees fit. He believes wholly in the powerful Uh, hand of God, while at the same time retaining God's freedom. God is free to do whatever is right to God. This is really helpful. Faith does not dictate to God as if God somehow is our errand boy. What I think God should do, he must do, and that's faith. I believe he will do it. That is not what's being displayed here by Jonathan. Faith in God knows that He has infinite power, but we do not presume upon that power. The Lord Jesus gives us an example of this in Mark chapter 14. He cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He doesn't stop there, he follows it up by saying, Yet not what I will, but what you will. So true biblical faith in God knows, believes in His power. To do all things, but this is really important, but submits to his will, knowing that he is both wise and, this is really important, all powerful, all wise, and he is good. Biblical faith is complete, wholehearted, mind, soul, body, and strength, reliance, and trust upon, upon God, fully trusting him in every situation. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. We have to acknowledge in humility that we do not have the transcript of God's divine decrees. We have his word that's been revealed to us, and we walk by faith and not by sight. Who knows what this all-powerful God might be delighted to do in whatever difficult circumstance we find ourselves in. For Jonathan, It was against these uncircumcised Philistines that he cries out, perhaps God will see fit to work for us. Then I want us to look at the second part of what Jonathan says. Jonathan doesn't doubt God's ability to save. The second half of the verse makes this clear. So chapter 14, verse 6, the latter part, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many, Or by few. So Jonathan in this situation is allowing God, not that God needs to be allowed, but allowing God to be God. Whatever he sees fit to do, I trust it will be right. Fully trust. We're going to move forward and lay this before the Lord and seek a sign from him. God is sovereign. And he will save if he so chooses, regardless of the amount of people he has in his hands to use. William Carey, the great missionary, launched a generation of missions with this resounding message, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. So good. Carey himself, if you read any kind of biographical sketch of his life and ministry, overcame great odds and so much discouragement along the way to launch one of the first successful missions in India. And so in our story, if it pleases the Lord to use Jonathan to gain victory for Israel, then it did not matter what kind of armor or weapons he had or how many people were with him. It did not matter the details of the terrain, it did not matter how difficult the terrain was that was laid before him. His faith did not rely on having favorable circumstances. What we saw in chapter 13, it was the unbelief of Saul, and they were really difficult circumstances. And we gravitated towards sympathizing with him in his, his fall in that chapter because the circumstances were so difficult. Now, I want you to see this morning that for Jonathan, the circumstances were just as difficult And yet we see someone walking by faith. If God is with us, then we need to understand we outnumber the cosmos. If God is not with us, it does not matter how many people we we have with us, we can be tripped up by even the very smallest of things. And I love in verse 7 the response of the young armor bearer, which really is a testimony to Jonathan's faith. God's work in Jonathan's life for him to respond do all that is in your heart do as you wish behold I am with you heart and soul You can only imagine this was not off the cuff completely different action by Jonathan but it had to have been a mark of his life for his armor bearer to see and say yeah I, I've been walking with you I know who it is that you trust fully and I'm I'm all in I'm ready ready to go lead the way and then in verses 8 through 10, then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And he lays out before the armor bearer, this will be the sign in which we are going to either move or not move. So he is, he is acting, and yet at the same time, he is seeking the Lord's will in this situation. And so we heard it read earlier that what's going to happen is they're going to show themselves. To the Philistines, and all depending upon what the Philistines say in response, will either give them the green light or they will stand still. And with Jonathan, we see we see assertiveness, but we don't see rashness. He is waiting for a sign before moving. What he has, as far as God's revealed will at this point, is that the Philistines are not to be in the land of Israel. The Philistines are the enemy of the Israelites. That's what he knows, and so he is moving and waiting for this sign. So Jonathan and the armor bearers show themselves to the Philistines, and we hear, like out of some cinematic feature film, uh, the the unknown Philistines' famous line, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Maybe inject or... input like on Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone's voice as the Philistines say this to Jonathan and his armor bearer. And that is the cue. That is what Jonathan has been waiting for. This is the, the sign from God. And so Jonathan relays that to him in verse 12, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And we see Just how difficult this climb was, Jonathan using hands and feet to work himself and the armor bearer up after him, up to the ledge where the Philistine outpost is located in Michmash. The ravine that Jonathan had to climb was difficult. I want us to keep hearing that. This was difficult circumstances, difficult in order for him to first go down and then ascend. All of that was difficult. And Jonathan first needed to go down in order to then ascend up. And Jonathan's ascent up would actually then lead to their fall. It's a great word picture that we have before us. But what is clear, it was not flat, it was not easy. And in the midst of all this, we do not see Jonathan grumbling or complaining. He's moving and relying on God through it all. Verse 16, after they begin to strike down the Philistines, 20 Philistines at this point have been struck down, and then God creates just this chaos in the camp. The watchman of Saul in verse 16 in Gibeah of Benjamin takes notice, they see what's going on, and Saul's like, someone from here must have left. Something's going on here, obviously. The multitude... They're dispersing here and there. And in, in the original, in the Hebrew, the, the, the description is actually the word melting. So if you think about the description given to us of the Philistines in chapter 13, I think it was 30,000 chariots and then thousands and thousands of foot soldiers. And it's just a massive army. You could say it was a block of ice. It was something substantial, hard, firm, And what we see here as the mighty hand of God moves is this description of everything beginning to to melt away. This great metaphor, what was solid, now everybody is terrified in the Philistine camp. And and in a sense, it is melted, it is turned into water, and it is now running everywhere. What What a great description of God using Jonathan and the armor bearer and then really creating havoc within the camp Of the Philistines. Now, this leads to a very interesting exchange between King Saul and Ahijah. I may have said it different now, the third time. But, anyways, the lineage of Eli. This exchange between Saul and this man is very, very interesting. As we were reading this as a family, um, my children perked up when they heard about the ark being possibly marched back into battle because if you remember going back to 1st Samuel chapter 4 this should alert us this was not a good move do you remember when the elders of the Israelites gather around and after 4,000 had been defeated and they're like what in the world just happened Uh, in the hands of the Philistines they're like we've got to do something And rather than crying out to God, they decide, well, almost like a rabbit foot theology, they're going to grab something that represents God, bring it here. And if we have this something, then we will get what we want. We've done the right thing. We've brought the power to us. Now we will be able to overcome or conquer our enemies. And as soon as this even idea comes to mind again from Saul, bring the ark of God here, it makes the reader at least perk up and ask, we don't know exactly what was going through his mind. Was he seeking the Lord's favor like he tried in in chapter 13 and failed? Or was he trying to reenact something that failed so miserably before where the ark was actually captured by the Philistines? We, We don't know. But this exchange is really to kind of to kind of give us an understanding of where where Saul is in his kingship. One one author, commentator, Gordon uh, Keddie, I think is how you say his name, in his commentary on 1 Samuel puts his finger on the problem, I think. Saul gives us the impression that he felt that he was supposed to be religious and observe certain conventions at the appropriate times. But really, he did not have deep convictions of his own. He used religion as opposed to living a personal faith in the Lord. There's a huge contrast here between Saul and Jonathan, and we see that really in how Saul responds. He, he loses patience as he's watching this chaos unfold uh, in micmash We're told in the text, I think verse 19, now, while Saul was talking to the, priest, to, to the priest, he's seeing all that's happening over there, and he basically just kind of shuts it down. He says to the priest, withdraw your hand. Like, bad, bad idea. We're, we're just going to go. And I think it's good for us to just spend time reflecting on that. We don't know everything that was happening in his mind and heart at that time. But really, it does expose just a, a great contrast between the faith displayed by Jonathan and, again, kind of like just religious observance, thinking that if I just do certain things, then things will will come about the way that I think they should come about. And then we look at the the last few verses of our passage this morning. Then Saul and all the people who were with him began to rally. So once they saw that this was starting to really go Israel's way, uh, you could say it was kind of like the fair weather supporters came out in mass. I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, but I consider myself, in most arenas of sports, a fair weather fan. So if like a team from Texas is doing really good, you know, Dallas Cowboys, if they ever would, I would jump on that wagon and start cheering for them or the Mavericks or whatever. You know, when things are going really well, you just jump on it. And you're like, I've been here forever. This, this is awesome. And you really, you haven't. Uh, we see that same thing happening. Some of the, some of the Israelites who had Really, it looks like join the other team, have been with the Philistines while this is all transpiring and chaos is is amidst and and things are obviously going the Israelites way. God has caused an earthquake even. Those people start to turn and go, oh, maybe maybe we are on the wrong side here. So they they link arms with Saul and his few. And then we see people who have been hiding in the holes and caves start to come out. And they also join in. And so they appear in abundance, and you could say the, the route at that point was on. And I think it's just important for us to see that it really was unnecessary to God's mighty hand moving for them to participate, but, but it did bring back the people and understanding, whoa, this is, this is bigger than us. This kingdom is actually ruled and reigned by the one true king, and God's mighty hand is put on display Verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The situation began with the depressing fact that all in Israel, only Saul and Jonathan possessed swords, the proper, um, the proper weapons for war. And through Jonathan's bold faith put on display, the Lord was able to use his sword, yes, But actually the swords of the enemy to take to 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 use against themselves. There was so much chaos and terror and panic that the Philistines were beginning to turn on themselves. And there is only one who is left to get all the glory in this situation. It was not Jonathan or the armor bearer or Saul and the and the people who eventually came on the scene, but all glory is given to God and God alone. The Lord was able to even use the Philistine swords against them. And so it takes us back to verse 6 and the profound truth that Jonathan speaks. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And as we look at church history, um, one man stood forth for the Lord in a generation during the Reformation. And that would be John Knox. And it's good for us to hear how the Lord has used his people throughout the history of the church. So he was one of the early adherents to the Reformation gospel in Scotland and experienced heavy persecution because of the gospel and narrowly, narrowly escaping Scotland and ends up in Geneva, exiled to Geneva where John Calvin is and he's able to sit And be a part of that ministry, sit, meaning sit under Calvin and and participate and learn and see firsthand the power of God that can transform a whole society in Geneva. And then he eventually returns to his homeland. And he is bold in his proclamation of the gospel and standing for the Reformation cause, the five solas, sending forth the gospel message, aggressively opposing all sorts of perversions of the gospel that dominated his land. Now, under his leadership, Scotland emerged from the darkness and oppression of the medieval Roman Catholicism. And it's a good question to to hear posed. How did John Knox accomplish so much in his life? And from his own lips, John Knox declared that one man with God is always in the majority. I love that. That is the same theme with Jonathan and his armor bearer. One man with God is always in the majority. We saw that in our our passage this morning. The thundering arm of God put on display through those who would be found faithful, who would trust him wholly and act. I think it's good for us to be, be reminded as we close in who it is that we are trusting in. God is the one of infinite power. We read from his word, we're reminded from his word all throughout the pages of scripture. This foundational truth for all who believe in him. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis eighteen fourteen, And the answer is a resounding no. I know that you can do all things. Job 40, 42, 2 nothing is too hard for you, O Lord, Jeremiah 32. Nothing will be impossible with God, Luke 1, 37. With God, all things are possible. And again, hearing from the Lord Jesus, all things are possible for you, O Father. So true faith is possible trusting fully upon God because, this is the the ground for it, because there is nothing that can hinder God from accomplishing all of his purposes and all of his plans. So even though this is a clouded victory, as we will see, because of Saul's leadership, what we do get in these first 23 verses is a glimpse in true biblical faith and highlighting the one in which he is trusting fully in. So God is the hero, please do not miss that. It is the mighty hand of God that delivers his people again and again. And for those of us who follow God as the one true God, as the one that we seek refuge in and help from. This should invigorate our faith. As we see Maybe the most difficult circumstances pressing in upon us daily, whatever it is. It could be a whole host of things. We, we are not directed by our circumstances, but our eyes, by the help of the Spirit, are raised once again and fixed firmly on the one who is more than able. And that is a wonderful place for us to be. Let us pray. Father, I pray for those in this room right now who in their life have never fully trusted you, have never fully depended upon you for all things. Maybe in their own strength, they are still trying to be good enough or to to orchestrate their lives in a way that they think will, will bring flourishing or blessing. And I pray that you would just rip all of that away and drive us to our knees in repentance and belief upon your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, may we, by the power of the Spirit, display the kind of bold faith that we see from Jonathan's life this morning, and may we trust you wholeheartedly with every sphere of our lives. May you get all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.